Really what it is, it's Resurrection Day. And so that's what we're celebrating here today at Calvary Chapel East. You know, I was thinking about a couple of things, really. Someone made a comment just in the last day or two, which kind of, it kind of broke my heart, really, to tell you the truth. The resurrection came up, and the fact that Sunday is Resurrection Day, and this person, one person said, um, yeah, that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. And the other person said, allegedly, in other words, that's what people claim, indicating that this person didn't really believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. And that, that broke my heart. And I was watching uh, Jesse Waters' Waters World on Fox News, and he was interviewing people out on the street, asking them what this day was all about. And one girl said, well, isn't that the day Jesus was born? Not quite accurate, of course. And there were others who just really didn't have any concept at all of what today was all about. It was really sad, again, that fewer and fewer people, even in the Western world, the part of the world that we would consider to be the most Christianized, either don't have an awareness of the resurrection, an understanding of it, or a belief in it. But at the same time, I would also make note of the fact there are two days out of the entire year that people all over the world participate in. Two days of celebration all over the world. Now, there are a lot of localized celebrations here and there, the various ethnic groups, nationalities, different faith systems, all have their various celebrations. But two days out of the year, there are celebrations that are broadcast all over the world, TV, satellite, cable, internet, you name it. And you will find people in every corner of the globe. I don't care what ethnicity they are, what color they are, what their economic status is. All over the world, every year, people celebrate the birth of Christ, Christmas, which we know really isn't his true birthday, but nonetheless, I think it's fantastic to have a day every year where we celebrate the incarnation, the birth of Christ, the coming into this world of the one and only Son of God. And the other day that we find universally acknowledged, even if it's not universally celebrated, it is universally acknowledged, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no day celebrating the resurrection of Muhammad. Why? Because he didn't rise from the dead. There's no day celebrating the resurrection of Buddha because he didn't rise from the dead. We could go on and on. Confucius, Krishna, Joseph Smith or Muhammad, if you will. No day to celebrate any of their births or their resurrections, at least not on an international level. And so no matter what you may think or believe about Jesus, there are even those who try to deny that he was really an historical figure, and yet that is ridiculous. There's more evidence to support the historicity of the life, the birth, life, and death of Jesus Christ and resurrection than just about any other historical figure we've ever known. So there are those who would even try to deny that he ever existed. That's ridiculous. That's foolish. It's nonsense. But certainly many who deny the resurrection, many who scoff, make fun of it, refuse it, reject it, and yet at the same time, again, as we take the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's been no other event in human history which even comes close to the impact that the life of Christ has made on this world. None. That's pretty amazing if the whole thing was a big farce, a big fake. How would he have ever had such an incredible impact? And it's often been said that the, the best argument for the reality of Jesus Christ, for God the Father, God the Son, God the, God the Holy Spirit, is changed lives. Lives that have been absolutely transformed by the saving grace of Jesus Christ. I was reminded again this morning 
of a guy named Frank Morrison. He was an investigative journalist. I believe it's been almost 100 years ago now since he did his investigation. But Frank Morrison was not a believer. In fact, he was quite the opposite. He set out to disprove the resurrection. He wasn't the first and he won't be the last. Everyone that's ever attempted to do that has failed. But he launched a very thorough investigation into the evidence, biblically and non-biblically. Every piece of evidence he could find looking for evidence against it. And at the end of his investigation, he became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and wrote a book called, Who Moved the Stone? And so this has happened many times down through human history as people have set out to disprove the claims of Christ only to wind up being believers. Most people who are not believers, I would propose to you, have never really done that. They've never really checked it out for themselves. They've never read the Bible objectively without infusing everybody's opinions and ideas into it. They've never genuinely, sincerely asked God to make himself known to them. This man did it. Others have done it. And whenever they do that, they wind up finding out that it's real, it's true. And so today we're going to look at Luke chapter 24. This is Luke's recounting of the things that took place on Resurrection Day. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for the reality of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, we know it's not a myth. We know it's not a fairy tale. It's a real deal. And it's a game changer. Before Jesus came on scene... The human race was lost, dying, on its way to an eternity separated from you, Father. But you changed all that when you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect, sinless life here on earth so that he could become our sacrifice. God, we ask you to bless this time in your word this morning. We ask you to touch hearts, open minds, touch hearts, and change lives this morning, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 24, 1. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. The various female followers of Christ, uh, there was more than one lady named Mary. There was a lady named Joanna, Salome, and different ones. If you recall, when Jesus was there on the cross, All of the disciples had fled. They were afraid. They were in hiding. Only one disciple was there, and that was John the Beloved. And John the Beloved was standing there next to Jesus' mother, Mary. And Jesus commended the care and keeping of his mother into the hands of John the Beloved, the Apostle John. All of the female followers appear to have been there at the cross. The men were not. And so uh, these ladies had planned to go and give Jesus' body a proper burial preparation. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had done a very hasty preparation of the body because Passover was about to begin. And once Passover had begun, they would not be able to handle a dead body. So they hastily prepared the body of Christ, a few herbs and spices, wrapped it in linens, placed him in the tomb. And the ladies, they were sad, they were brokenhearted, And they wanted to show love and respect for their Lord and Savior by going and giving him a proper preparation. The Jewish form of burial preparation was not an embalming like the Egyptians. It was merely to lessen the aroma coming off the decaying body and just to show love and respect for the departed. The first day of the week, of course, is Sunday because the end of the week for the Jews was Saturday The Sabbath would begin at sundown on Friday and conclude at sundown on Saturday. And so that was the end of the week for them. Sunday was the beginning of a new week, the first day when they would go back to work. But now our whole calendar has changed because of Christianity, where traditionally now for the last 2,000 years, Sunday has been the Christian Sabbath, if you will, or day of worship, because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. But now we see a society where 
Every day is the same. When I was young, the stores would close on Sunday. There would be very few things open. Families would go to church, or at the very least, just stay home and be together. Uh, those days are no longer here. But the first day of the week would be Sunday. Very early in the morning, as in sunrise, and that's why a lot of churches have sunrise services. I've never been a big fan of the sunrise service. So we're here at 10 o'clock this morning. Now they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. We read back in Luke 23, 55 and 56, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. That's what brings us up to this place where they found, verse 2, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. This stone, you may already know this, but we'll just remind ourselves, this was probably a one and a half to two ton stone. Very heavy. It had been lodged in front of the doorway. There's a place outside the old city of Jerusalem called the Garden Tomb. Uh, It's owned by a British Christian British society that maintains it. It's a great place to go and visit, to tour there. And uh, many believe this is the actual tomb. If not, it's certainly, you couldn't get much closer than this. It's definitely very old. It's not something that's some modern creation. But they have a, 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 a slot there that's been carved out of the stone. There's no stone there anymore. But you can see where it goes slightly downhill towards the opening of the tomb where you could roll that stone down to put it in place. This stone had been lodged in front of the doorway of Jesus' tomb. It was a circular stone like a solid wheel. It had been rolled in front of the entrance to the cave, the tomb, uh, to keep uh, intruders out. And remember, according to Matthew 27... Uh, verses 62 through 66, the tomb had been sealed by the Roman authorities and guarded. They put their seal upon it. The seal stood for the power and authority of the Roman Empire. The consequences of breaking the seal were extremely severe. The Roman equivalent of the FBI and the CIA were called into action to find the man or men who were responsible. This is how it would normally be handled. And if they were apprehended, it meant automatic execution by crucifixion, upside down. So you can bet your bottom dollar nothing would have or should have deterred these soldiers from guarding that tomb. But what happened? What happened to the guards? The ladies get there. There's no guards there. And the stone's been rolled away. Matthew 28, 2 through 4. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The Roman guards then apparently fled. These guards who knew that to shirk their duty could mean their own lives. They left their place of responsibility. How can this be explained when Roman military discipline was so strict? Justin, in his digest, number 49, mentions all the offenses that required the death penalty. The fear of their commanding officer's wrath and the possibility of death meant that they paid close attention to even the smallest details of their job. One way a guard was put to death was by being stripped of his clothes and then burned alive in fire with his garments. If it could not be determined which soldier had failed in his duty, then lots were drawn to see which one would be punished with death for the guard's unit's failure. There's no way the entire unit would have fallen asleep with that kind of threat hanging over their heads. Dr. George Curry, a student of Roman military discipline, wrote that the fear of punishment produced flawless attention to duty, especially in the night watches. So the only explanation would be that they did indeed have this angelic encounter and it was so fearful that they simply froze and then fled 
We know that later on they struck up a deal with the Jewish authorities. If the Jewish authorities would cover for them, then they would um, remain silent about what really happened to cover up what really did happen. So the ladies are there. The guards are gone. Verse 3, Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Which is exactly what these women were expecting to find. What were they expecting? A dead body. They went there to finish the loving memorial preparations for Jesus' dead body. Instead, there's no body. Matthew 27, 62, on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying the day of preparation was the day of preparation for Passover. So this is prior to the resurrection. But they said to Pilate, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. And so already the chief priests... The Pharisees were concerned about what Jesus had prophesied, that he would rise from the dead, and they're trying to cover for this. Even the chief priests knew that Jesus had predicted his resurrection, and yet his closest followers had no expectation of finding a living, breathing, resurrected Jesus. They weren't expecting that. No wonder Jesus referred six times in the Gospels to his disciples as having little faith, O ye of Little faith, even though he had tried to prepare them for not only for his death, but for his resurrection. And folks, let's be honest, we're no different. Over and over again, God has proved himself faithful. I'm sure that there's a few here in the room with me today, the worship team and so forth. I'm sure that we have all experienced many miracles in our lives. I was just talking to my brother recently. He's seven years younger than me. He's a believer. He hasn't always been faithful in his church attendance. But he's definitely a very strong believer. And we were talking about everything going on in the world right now with this pandemic and so forth. And of course, he, like many others, sees many apocalyptic signals in what's taking place in our world right now. Of course, one of the greatest concerns is those with um, less than pure motives seizing this moment as an opportunity to gain more and more control over the lives of the people. For even those in the free world, we know that there are many countries where people already have little or no freedom, including China, where this virus originated. But we have enjoyed tremendous freedoms in this nation. That's why this nation was birthed life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, so forth. And we see many of those freedoms being eroded at this time. And so he's ex-military. In fact, he was special forces. And so he's real concerned about all this. But I was very encouraged in just talking to him and to hear how resolute he was in his faith. And he talked about the fact he was speaking with one of our cousins, actually, whom we actually lived with for a period of time after our parents died. And he was concerned because she had stated that she no longer believed in God. And he was challenging her, her on that. And he said, you know better. You know deep down in, our heart, in your heart that he's real, that he's alive. He does miracles for us every single day. My brother said that. So many times we just don't notice it. We don't recognize it. But we're no different than these disciples. O oh, ye of little faith. Over and over again, God has proved himself faithful, and yet we continue to doubt him. Thank God that his faithfulness is not affected by our unbelief. Do you realize that? Be encouraged by that. Even when you are struggling with your belief, with your faith, God is not affected by that. And this is one of my favorite Bible passages, 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. Paul writes to the young pastor Timothy, This is a faithful saying, 
For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. But here we are. If we're faithless, there's a big difference between denying him and simply being faithless. At times, we all have those moments in our lives when our faith seems to be weak. We need to endure so that we might reign with him. We cannot and must not deny him. He said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. But if we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He cannot go back on his word. He can't go back on his promises. And something else I see here where it says he cannot deny himself. When you are a born-again child of God, he lives inside of us. We now have his DNA. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. And if he were to deny us in those moments when we are faithless, when we're lacking, struggling with our faith, he would be denying himself because he lives in us. Very encouraging words from Paul to Timothy. So even though sometimes we falter, just like the disciples, Jesus did his best to prepare them for this moment. But initially they, they were faithless. And it happened, verse 4, Luke 24. It happened as they were greatly perplexed. This is the ladies now, the women, the disciples are hiding. They're not even here. They're not even part of it right now. They were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. They're greatly perplexed. Their immediate reaction was not, oh, he must be risen, he must be alive. No, they're perplexed. The tomb's empty. Where's the body? What could have happened? Someone must have stolen his body, and that was the lie told by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and backed up by the Roman soldiers to cover their own tales. And then they have the two men standing by them in shining garments. Either these two men were ancient Israeli rock stars, or they were angels. What do you think? Obviously, the two men were angels. Luke 24, 23, when they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And so not only was the angel there that had rolled away the stone sitting on top of the stone, there were these two angels. One might have been the same, but then there was an additional one. And something to notice here, the Bible tells us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And there have been certain people who have given accounts of where they claim to have had angelic visitations and how wonderful it was and amazing. But in the scriptures you find, in just about every case, the most common response to angelic visitations is fright. They are powerful, dynamic, amazing beings. And anyone who paints a different picture most likely is not really seeing an angel, I would say. And we have these many reports of alien encounters. They're probably a result of interaction with fallen angels or demonic entities. So their in initial reaction is they're, uh, they're perplexed, greatly perplexed. They don't know what's going on. They were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth. Verse 5, they said to them, Then as they, the women, were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they, the angels, said to the ladies, Why do you seek the living among the dead? you got to love the way they put this across. They don't just come right out and say, What's the matter with you girls? Jesus is risen. Now they give them a little, you know, riddle, a little puzzle. Why do you seek the living among the dead? And then they go on from there and say, He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. So there's the whole package. He tells them that he's going to die, but he also tells them he's going to rise again. Matthew 16, 21, From the time 
Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And I have a point I'm going to make here in just a moment. Matthew 17, 9. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision, this would have been the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, where they, Jesus met with Moses and Elijah. Peter, James, and John saw all three of them meeting there together. Saw Moses alive, Elijah alive. They saw Jesus in all of his heavenly glory. And he, just, he tells them as they come down, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Finally, Matthew 17, 23. Jesus says they will kill him, meaning himself. The third day he would be raised up. And they were what? Exceedingly sorrowful. Why? The disciples were filled with grief when they heard this. What about the tag here? We see it over and over again. On the third day, he'll be raised to life. Every time he tells them he's going to die, he's going to be crucified, he's going to be seized by evil, sinful men and killed, he always tags it with and be raised up from the dead on the third day. It makes a strong point, folks, for each and every one of us. If you're watching, whether you're a believer today or not, I hope there's many non-believers watching. I really do. But, we all tend to struggle with, you've heard this expression, selective hearing. A lot of times it happens between husbands and wives, right? I don't remember that. I never heard you say that. Selective hearing. We all tend to hear what we want to hear, don't we? Or, and here's what happened with the disciples, at the first sign of something we perceive to be negative, we shut down. That's why I guess it's recommended good communication skill. If you need to tell someone uh, something corrective or critical, I mean, not just for the sake of being critical, but because you, uh, you're trying to give constructive criticism, it's always best to start out with a compliment first, right? Something positive. And then move into that other part where you have to bring correction or, uh, you know, constructive criticism or whatever. But Jesus told them the way it was going to be. He'd be taken, arrested, captured by sinful men, crucified, and on the third day he'd be raised from the dead. But the problem is so often if a conversation starts off with something that we perceive to be negative, then we shut down mentally. John 16, 33, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, if you had been there when Jesus said this to his disciples, in the world you're going to have tribulation. Oh, man, I knew it. Great. It's all over. I'm done for. It's going to be horrible. I'm going to have tribulation. But wait a minute. He tags it with this. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The very world that's going to bring you tribulation, I've already overcome it. But more than likely, when they heard him say in the world you'll have tribulation, they didn't really hear the next part. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Now there's another problem that many people have, and I confess I'm one of them. I'll just confess that right now. The, the type of person that finishes other people's sentences for them. My wife knows this one big time. I am kind of a fast-paced individual. My brain moves fairly rapidly. And if some people just have a slow way of talking, easy, laid back, and if there's too much space, then I have a tendency to fill it in for them. I'm just being honest. But do you hate it when other people do that to you? Sometimes it's helpful because we're having trouble 
finding the right words or remembering what we're going to say. And sometimes it's helpful when people jump in like that, but uh, too much of it can be rather irritating, right? The problem is, do we ever do that to God? Do we ever finish his sentences for him? Just like, he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed. Oh, great. Then why did we just waste three and a half years following you, Jesus? Wait a minute. And be raised the third day. They probably never heard it. They'd already lost their focus, lost their concentration, and they finished the sentence for him with their own idea of what would happen next. You know what? We all need to stop trying to finish God's sentences for him. A lot of people do that. They read the Bible. They get to a certain point. They don't like what they hear, what they read, what they see. And so they finish the sentence themselves. That's how all the cults came about. That's how all the false religions and false belief systems came about. By finishing God's sentences for him. Don't do that. Let him finish his own sentences. We need to listen to everything he has to say before we, quote, fly off the handle. I never thought about it before where that phrase came from. Do you think about where certain phrases come from? But now I'm thinking about it. It probably has something to do with like an axe or a hammer or something. And have you ever had one where the head came loose and went flying off? Don't fly off the handle. And that's why Paul wrote in Acts 20, 27, or Luke wrote it actually, but it's the words of Paul. For I have not shunned to declare to you, he tells the Ephesian elders, it's the final farewell, I won't be seeing you again. I'm entrusting the care and keeping of this church in Ephesus to you guys to watch over the flock. Ravenous wolves will come in and savage the flock. Be watchful, be waiting, it's going to happen. Protect the sheep. And part of his parting words were, I have not failed to deliver to you the whole counsel of God. I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Paul didn't finish God's sentences for him. Now maybe prior to his conversion on the road to Damascus, he did. But once he met the risen Christ, he learned to not finish God's sentences for him. And that's what he means by, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God I haven't held anything back. Unfortunately, there are a lot of preachers and teachers today doing that. They hold back any part of the Bible that they're concerned someone might be offended by. As we think about, meditate upon, reflect on the life of Christ, which is revealed to us in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we do find that on many occasions Jesus did offend people, not because he came to offend he came to set the captives free, bring recovery of sight to the blind, heal the brokenhearted, and ultimately to die on the cross for the sins of the world. But he never pulled any punches. He spoke the truth and nothing but the truth. So help him God. Paul brought the whole counsel of God. I would encourage you, whoever you are, wherever you are watching today, if not this church, we'd love to have you here if you're in the Albuquerque area. But wherever you are, get yourself plugged in and hopefully those days are not far off when we will be able to meet again as a group, as a body of believers in person. Find a church that you can plug into where they do not shun to deliver to you the whole counsel of God. So many today are afraid to do that. So they just focus on the comfortable, easy, non-confrontational parts of Scripture. But we need the whole counsel of God. So the angels are reminding these women of the words of Christ. He spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, verse 6. In verse 7, the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. In verse 8, and then they remembered his words. They were so taken aback by the whole situation, the horrible beating, flogging, mocking of Christ, 
driving the crown of thorns, three-inch-long, thick thorns turned into a crown, shoved down into his scalp, into his skull. The horrible beating with the cat of nine tails by the Roman soldiers. Dragging that cross to Golgotha, so beaten, so battered, so weakened, he had to have the help of Simon of Cyrene. And then to see their beloved master, their rabbi, their Lord, hanging there decimated on that cross, dying, struggling to breathe, bleeding out all of his blood, and then going to the tomb and finding the body missing. They were devastated. And so they needed to be brought back to their senses, snapped out of it. The angel reminded them of his words, and then they remembered his words. Even though they'd heard Jesus say these things numerous times, they needed a little reminder. Often the teaching and preaching of the Word of God is simply reminding us of that which deep down in our hearts we already knew. John 14, 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. God promised to give us his Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to remind us when we get into difficult situations, when we're struggling, when we're stressed out, when we're concerned, fearful, whatever it might be, the Holy Spirit there is to bring to our remembrance the truths we find in the Word of God. But as I said a week or two ago in my message, in order to be reminded, we have to have read it in the first place. That's why it's important to be in the Word of God consistently. Paul 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. Why would he need to remind them then? If they've taken their stand on the gospel that he preached, well, we get distracted, don't we? By everyday life, the things that happen in our lives, all the activities. And we probably live in a world today where there are more distractions than ever before. So Paul says, I want to remind you, and there may be some watching today that are being reminded of things you haven't thought about for a long, long time. I hope so. Finally, Peter, 2 Peter 1, 12 through 15. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you. And so Peter says, as a man of God, as an as a apostle, as a pastor, teacher, to not remind people of the words of Christ and the words of God would be negligent. And yet I've seen certain people in pulpits get up and read from a book, not the Bible, just some other book. Maybe it was a book of psychology or what have you. No, we need to be reminded of the gospel of Christ, the words of God. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you've taken your stand. That's Paul. And then Peter, for this reason, I'll not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. What does that tell us? Even when we know these things were established in the present truth, we need to be consistently in God's Word, not only on our own, but being taught, being in a church, being under local leadership, pastors, teachers, leaders, elders. This is part of maintaining. As Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I've talked about before the need for maintenance, regular Ongoing maintenance in our spiritual lives. You know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right. As long as I am in this tent, referring to his physical body, as long as I'm here on earth, Peter says, to stir you up, how? By reminding you. Not by making up new things like some are prone to do. Oh, well, people are getting bored with God, getting bored with the Bible. We're going to have to come up with something new and different. No, no. We simply need to be reminded of that which has already been revealed to us. Knowing that shortly I must put off this tent, writes Peter, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Jesus showed Peter how he was going to be martyred for his faith. Peter was crucified upside down by requests because he felt he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ Boy, Peter came a long way from those early days, didn't he? Moreover, I will be careful, verse 15, 2 Peter 1, 15, 
Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. That's another reason we need reminders. We've had many great men and women of the faith over the past 2,000 years who have handed down to us tremendous teachings, knowledge, understanding. They've been great role models for us in the Christian faith. But a recent example, the, the late, great Billy Graham, he's no longer with us. And so as they pass, generation after generation, we need reminders. We need to be reminded because those people come and they go and they're now in the presence of the Lord. After my decease, he wants us to continue. And here we are 2,000 years later, still reading the words of Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So our final verse today as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ Luke 24, verse 9. Then they returned, the women. Peter and John haven't gotten there yet. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven. Remember, no more Judas. He went out and hanged himself. Told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. The rest of the faithful followers who had continued to stick together even under the darkness of Christ's crucifixion. They returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And this is the very essence, folks, of Christian testimony, of witnessing. Telling others the truth about what you yourself have seen. What exactly did they say? Matthew 28, 5 through 8. The angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And we know that in the process of all this happening, none other than Mary Magdalene has a personal encounter with the risen Christ. She sees him with her own eyes. They bring back this report to the disciples. And that's what Christianity is all about, folks. We, unfortunately, so many times surround our faith with all these peripheral, non-essential issues. The very heart, the very core of the gospel message of the Christian faith is the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what separates the God from the boys. Jesus is God. He's God in human form, fully human, fully God. And as I mentioned at the very beginning of this message, after 2,000 years, this resurrection of Jesus Christ is still celebrated all over the world. No one has ever been able to refute it, disprove it, deny it, and to the contrary, those who have tried have wound up becoming believers because the evidence is overwhelming. The only thing preventing anyone today who may be watching from becoming a follower of Christ, a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is your own choice, your own free will. The evidence is abundant. It's just a matter of you choosing. Belief is a choice. If you're waiting for God to wave his magic wand over you or to strike you with lightning. By the way, I wouldn't recommend being stricken by lightning. That might be proved to be fatal. I would simply challenge you today to put God to the test. Give him the opportunity to make himself known to you. I'm going to pray a prayer right now that you might want to follow Follow along with, out loud if you'd like, there in your own home, wherever you are, or just in your heart, God hears your voice, whether you speak audibly or not. This would be what I would call a seeker's prayer. And then I'm going to follow that with a prayer for those who would like to receive Christ. Maybe you're no longer doubting, questioning. You're pretty much convinced and you're ready to open the door to your life, to Jesus Christ. You realize today Right this moment as you're watching that you need a Savior. You need salvation. You need to be saved from your sin. 
Because if, as long as you are separated from God and lost in your sin, you will not spend eternity with him in paradise. That was the promise made to him by him to the thief on the cross. This day you'll be with me in paradise. If you're ready to become a part of God's forever family, if you're ready to receive Christ, then that will be the second part of my prayer. The first part is for those who might be seeking. You're uncertain, but you really want to know. Pray along with me now. Father God, I'm not sure if you're there or not. But if you are, I want to know it. I want to know you. Father, I don't want to finish my days here on earth doubting, not knowing, and then miss out on eternity with you. Father God, I pray right now that you'd reveal yourself to me. Make yourself known. Show me. Give me the gift of faith. Give me the gift of repentance so that I might be truly repentant for my sins. Confess them before you. And enter into a personal relationship with you. Father, right now, I give you permission to do a work in my heart and mind. Reveal yourself to me. Make yourself known to me, I ask. And now for those who would like to receive Christ, pray along with me. Father, I thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die on the cross for me. To become the sacrifice for my sins. Thank you, God. I know I'm not worthy, but I thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy. And Lord Jesus, I thank you for laying down your life for me, for pouring out your blood that I might be forgiven and spend eternity with you in paradise. Lord Jesus, please forgive me for my sins. Send your Holy Spirit to come and live inside of me. I want to be born again. I want to be a new creature in Christ. Give me the strength, Lord, to live for you, to follow you. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. And I thank you for the precious gift of salvation and eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. It's that simple. I would encourage you, if you've prayed either one or both of those prayers today, contact us. There's a number of ways you can get a hold of us. We have our website, which you probably are aware of. You're watching now, but it's calvarychapeleast.com. There is a way to communicate with us on the website. We have an email address, calvarychapeloffice at gmail.com. We have a phone number, 505-243-2025. We would love to hear from you. Let us know if you... Um, have received Christ, or if you're still seeking, would like more information, we would love to be in contact with you. And we wanted to finish our service this morning by partaking of communion together. This is um, for believers. We know there are some groups, some denominations that would give a person the impression that taking communion in and of itself will save you. This is not true, it's not biblical. Jesus, at the Last Supper, instituted this ordinance of communion to be participated in by his followers until his return, which is coming very soon, by the way. We are reminded more and more every day as we look around at the events of the time we're living in that Jesus is coming soon. All the more reason to be ready, to be prepared, to give your life to Christ. Communion is for believers. If you're not a believer today, then uh, you probably don't have your elements ready anyway. But we've sent out a message to all the people in our congregation to have your elements ready. But if you didn't get that email, if you want to grab a cracker real quick, a piece of bread, a little bit of juice, whatever you can get a hold of quickly, we're going to take communion together in just a moment. This was instituted at the Passover meal, the Last Supper. Jesus is the fulfillment of Passover, which just took place, by the way. When the death angel passed over the houses of all the Jewish people living in Egypt, who by faith put the blood of the lamb, the sacrificial Passover lamb, they were instructed to put the blood 
over their doorway, on their doorposts, the lentils, blood above, blood on either side, which, by the way, forms the shape of a cross. And then when the death angel came and took the life of every firstborn, that was one of the plagues at the time of Moses in Egypt when Pharaoh was refusing to let God's people go, they put the blood over their doorway, the death angel passed over and did not kill the firstborn of their household. Jesus is the Passover lamb. We sang that song this morning. He is the fulfillment of Passover. And at the Last Supper, first he broke the bread, which would have been unleavened bread, flat bread, bread without yeast, because in the Bible, yeast represents sin. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This does not save us. It reminds us of what Christ went through to purchase our salvation. We do it to remember. We talked about being reminded here today. This is another vivid reminder of the tremendous suffering that Christ endured on our behalf. We don't do it to be saved. We do it because we are saved. We do it out of obedience that we might be reminded of the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. We're going to pray now over the bread. Father God, thank you for this unleavened bread, this flat bread, no yeast, no sin, because Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us in our place. Lord, he said to do this in remembrance of him, Father. And so now we do that. We remember you, Jesus. We thank you for all the suffering you endured for us. We remember your body broken for us. Lord, you were wounded for our iniquities. You were bruised for our transgressions. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon you. And by your stripes, we are healed. Thank you, Lord. We ask you to bless this bread as we partake together now in Jesus' name. And as we know, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this is my blood, the covenant, the new covenant, the blood of the covenant. Poured out for the sins of many. Again, this doesn't save us. It doesn't become real blood as we drink it. It's simply a symbol, a reminder of the precious blood of Christ poured out for us on the cross of Calvary. The only antidote to the terminal illness of sin. Sin will kill us, not just physically, but spiritually. The blood of Christ is the antidote and as we apply the blood of, his, of the Lamb over the doorway of our hearts and minds, we acknowledge that His sacrifice is sufficient to pay the price for every sin we ever have or ever will commit. We celebrate that as we partake of the cup. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this cup representing the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask You to bless the cup, Lord, as we partake together now. Thank You for the precious blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you, Lord. Bless this cup as we partake together in Jesus' name. Amen.